You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Cassandra Rosario. Cassandra is the founder of the Rosario Group, a hospitality and consulting firm that builds brands in the digital economy. She's also the editor-in-chief of Food Before Love, which is an online hub for information on the vibrant food scene in New York City and beyond. Now, Cassandra is a foodie and a connector, and she's managed to turn her passions into a full-time career. But that's not the only thing we talked about. During our conversation, we got into race and identity. And Cassandra also touches on living in her truth as an Afro-Latina. So go ahead, take a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Cassandra Rosario, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Welcome to the December 26th podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. So happy to be here. Another sister. We're picking up momentum on the uh, female side, which is very exciting for me. So glad you could make it. And tell us, who is Cassandra Rosario? So Cassandra Rosario is a connector I would say also world traveler, advocate for the community, also sister, daughter, planner, and food writer. Okay. So let's start with the last one. Okay. Food writer. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a food writer? Uh, A lot of times people ask me what I do because I wear so many hats. I kind of just say, well, I write about food. Mm -hmm. Um, But the work is a lot deeper than that. So what I try to do is shed light on people in the industry that I think haven't been um, given their flowers enough. Mm -hmm. So I write about things like that and different highlights and profiles on people in the space. And then I love to eat. Don't we all? I'm down for that for sure. So I try to talk about places that um, people should go to that won't break bank, but also they can find a great experience and just help people learn more about food in different ways. Okay. And what is the brand under which you've built this food writer endeavor thing that you're working on? So my company is called Food Before Love. Mm -hmm. Should I tell you why we started? Please tell me why you started (laughs) and why it's called Food Before Love for sure. Okay. Uh, So I went to school for hospitality. I went to school upstate at RIT and I thought I wanted to own my own restaurant. I don't. Mm -hmm. And I left there to be an event planner and I ended up in finance, which I hated. I was supposed to be there for six to nine months on a temporary gig. It ended up being a year and a half. But about eight months in, I started thinking about just my purpose. And I really started thinking about the money I spent going to college and on my degree. And I was questioning what I was actually doing because it didn't have anything to do with food. And I wanted to get back to that. So at the time, I wanted to have my own uh, TV show. Mm -hmm. And at that time, this is in 2012, the Healy's were the only ones on Food Network. I don't know if you remember them. Yes. But they were significantly older than I am. They're also like from the South. I'm not. I wasn't that age. I couldn't relate to them. And still food TV kind of fell out of my reach. So I was like, what's the next best thing I could do to kind of get back to my degree? So I started writing about places I was going out to eat at. I was going out to eat often and people always asking me where I was going um, and what new hotspot I had been to. So I realized that a lot of my college friends, you know, they're just getting back home. I felt like I was rediscovering New York again because I went to school upstate, but I was home for the summers and I wasn't really eating out like that as a college student. So 
I felt like I was relearning New York and people were kind of on that journey with me. So I started just writing. Um, at that time, the brand was under a different name. It was like this long name on that I had got on WordPress. And maybe about two, three months in, I realized that people were actually reading what I had to say. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this is cool. People are watching and reading and, you know, maybe I should turn this into something. So I kind of just got with two of my friends and we were just kind of brainstorming on names and ideas. And one of the names that came up was Food Before Love. And for me, it was really about getting back to my first love, which is food. And I felt that at the time, people that I loved wanted me to do different things, um, wanted to be wanted me to be in roles that I didn't necessarily wanted to be in and wanted my path to look differently than what I wanted it to look like. So for me, it was about putting myself first for once, putting food um, first for once. And at the same time, I'm not the nicest person when I'm hungry. <laughs> so you're one of those who gets hangry. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but a lot of people are right. Yes. And food is such a catalyst for so many people. And people come together through food um, so many times. It's such a big part of our lives outside of, you know, consumption. Um, It's just a great way to connect people. And I felt like other people could connect with the name Food Before Love as well. So Mm -hmm. as much as it meant something to me personally, I felt other people could connect to that, too. And we like to say, like, it's a lifestyle and, you know, we live by this kind of thing. It is a great name. Just want to say that. Thank you. Okay, so let's take it back because I feel like we've met a lot of people through this show, some who've appeared, some who are going to appear, who started in finance and hated it. Like there's so many people who take that path and then realize that it's not for them. What drove you to it at first? Was it your family? Was it the income? Was it the safe choice? Why did you decide, okay, I'm going to do this? Um, It definitely was a financial decision. At the time, I was doing event planning, which I loved, and I was working for a caterer. So it was like food and events is like the best of both worlds for me. But I just wasn't getting paid enough. And my student loans were about to come up off deferment. And I was like, all right. Yeah, they will find you no matter where you are, like. Congrats, you graduated. Now about these payments. <laughs> exactly. And I also, because the project that I was on was temporary, I didn't feel like I was committing to something for so long that I felt I would get stuck in. I was like, it's going to end at some point and then I can go back to what I was doing. And honestly, when I took the job, I had plans to move internally doing meeting planning. Um, but then that never happened and the brand kind of grew. So, you know. So, okay. So you're doing finance. You decide, I'm going to start this blog. But I assume you didn't just like pull the parachute and jump out of the plane and just write. No. So it's funny. When I first started writing, I was writing like every day. Mm -hmm. But I was also going out that much, too. So I had a lot of content. And once once we started like establishing the business and I when I say we, I just mean my brand as a whole. Mm -hmm. I just like to speak in, you know, groups. Um, And I started spending money. I was like, okay, I'm going to need to make this money back. Right. I'm going to need to do other things so that this is sustainable. So about eight months after I like got my domain and everything, um, I did an event with someone and the event went really well. And at that time, I had just thought if I could do this with this person, I could do this by myself. And I should. And people were asking to go out to eat with me. So I was like, you know what? You guys can all come out to eat with me. And I did like this pop up brunch event, just like, just like meet up with me this weekend. Let's go out to eat. And about 40 people showed up. Okay. Wait, pause. Okay. (laughs) You decided to do a pop-up brunch event. Yeah. Just like a meetup. Okay. And you said, meet me at this place. 
and, you know, we're going to have a nice little brunch turn up and 40 people showed up. But how did you advertise that? Was it like a group text? Did you put it online? How did that work? Yeah, just through social media. Okay. So I text a ton of people. Uh, I had already started a newsletter, so I was already emailing um, people about what we had going on and through Twitter as well. Like back then, Twitter was still kind of hot in a different way that it is now. So I just created a flyer and I told people they should meet me on Saturday. And what were you advertising besides meeting you and eating? Anything else? So that day was also International Pillow Fighting Day. Okay. So the event was called <laughs> not know that was Pancakes a day. and Pillows. Okay. So we went to get pancakes and then after we would go to the fight and have a pillow fight. Everybody didn't do that part. <laughs> but... Uh, I had recently went to that restaurant to go out to eat at and it was something that I was always I'm always talking about where I was going out to. So I just told people to join me. Okay, so people showed up, 40 people. And this is not something you were monetizing. Nope. No. So you just said, come eat, be social, take a few photos and that's it. But did you have that that light bulb moment that was like, hmm, I'm onto something here? Yeah, I mean, I just feel like the light bulb kind of got bigger and Mm -hmm. bigger because I had that first event with my friend and didn't monetize that either. A ton of people came out for that. I was like, let me try this by myself. Did the meetup. A ton of people came out and I was like, okay, I got something. I can get people to come out. So then that's when I was like, okay, now we need to do something else. And that's when I started my brunch series called Mimosaholic. Okay, so tell us about Mimosaholic. So Mimosaholic, we've done it a couple of different ways. I haven't had the event in two years, but uh, our first one was done at this restaurant called Affair. We had about 40 people there. And basically what we do is we customize the menu with the chef and either do a prefix or kind of let people buy what they want. And we have a DJ there and basically curate the experience, try to put things on the menu that people don't normally have, like Eggs Benedict. Like now those are things that everybody eats. But back then, like I had friends that had never been to brunch before. Mm-hmm. So trying to put things on the menu that I could introduce people to that was different and also use it as a avenue to connect people to one another. So just trying to invite my different friend groups as well so that they could connect. And it kind of grew from there. So we had that one. We also did something for Cinco de Mayo, we did Cinco de Mimosa. Mm-hmm. And we've also have, have had a midnight brunch. And then the event escalated into a, I guess it grew into an annual boat ride. So for our boat ride, we've done it at midnight. We've also done brunch past. And we've also have had an ice cream party. Okay. So we didn't we didn't serve food exactly. We had ice cream served um, in between red velvet waffles and blue velvet waffles and served mimosas. Got it. I love the way your eyes twinkle when you talk about food. Like you're yeah. living this. For real. Love of eating for sure. Okay. So when did you get to the point when you were like, I don't need a day job anymore? Or have you gotten to that point? So I've been doing entrepreneurship for three years Mm -hmm. full time, but Food Before Love is going on seven years. Mm -hmm. So after I left J.P. Morgan, I was kind of still on my own for a few months. And then I started doing freelancing. So I, I was I do marketing and consulting. So I was doing that for a couple of nonprofits. And then I left that world to manage venues. So since that time, I've managed at least four venues open to for other people. But that was kind of my world for a while. And then 
I also did social media in the hospitality space. So because of that, people started to associate my personal skills with Food Before Love and I needed to create a separator. Mm -hmm. And that's when I established my second company, which is called the Rosario Group. And once I started kind of managing both, I kind of was just like, yeah, I can't do this for everybody else anymore. Like it just became too much. Um, So I kind of had to either transition people into being clients or just not work with them at all. And it's been that way since. Okay. So did you have a moment where you thought, okay, this is good. I've, you know, got some business. I'm making food before love pop. But can I pay all my bills with this? Or were you confident from the beginning once you started to monetize that you could eat, eat off your your passion for lack of <laughs> I see a what you term. did there. You see what I did? See? Um, it's funny. Somebody told me this a couple of months ago and I've been kind of sticking to it. And it's that entrepreneurship is feast or famine. Mm-hmm. So when things are real good, they real good. Absolutely. And when things are real bad, they real bad. So I think it's something that I think about all the time. Like, okay... You really, it still feels to me like I'm always chasing a check because things end, right. you know? So mm-hmm. you get on a contract and they end, trends end, projects end. So it's that constant hustle. I don't think there's a time where I'm like kicking my feet up. The days that I did feel that way, I burned myself out. Mm-hmm. So if there were times where I'm like, Ooh, I can relax. I really wasn't relaxing because I was working like probably harder than I ever had before. And I had to slow that down. Right. So I know a lot of people have passions and things that they're really committed to and would like to monetize them and make that their full time thing. But they don't necessarily know how to find client or clients or customers. Mm-hmm. So how did you let's take it back to like the nonprofit days when you were working with them. How did you find those clients? I really started to look at what their, who their core audience is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's about looking at who already supports you and kind of finding clones of those people. So it's more likely that the people that support you know more people that will support you because mm-hmm. birds of a feather flock together. So I think it's about starting there and kind of looking at, okay, this is who my target audience is. This is who currently supports me now. How can we meet in the middle? And looking at what attributes and what characteristics both parties have so that you can create your buyer. Mm-hmm. So are you cold reaching out to people though at this point when you first started? Are you going to your contacts and saying, hey, I'm doing this thing. I'd like to work with brands. How are you actually acquiring those clients though? Like I understand the this concept of being connected and knowing your core audience, but actually reaching them and, and connecting and getting them to buy into what it is that you're offering. So right now it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, uh, I had a lot of friends that would support me and I just kind of reached out to my networks as much as possible. I'm friends with fa- on Facebook with a bunch of people that I don't even know. So just kind of sharing things on there, sharing things on LinkedIn and also asking people to share it as well. Mm-hmm. Like if they'd be so kind to retweet something or reshare something so that it could reach more people. But now it's a little bit of both. The I kind of try to let the brand speak for itself and use social media to, you know, reach more people. I also reach out to brands. I'll cold call them. I'll cold email people. I have no problem doing that. Um, it was a no before you asked anyway. Mm-hmm. So just trying to put myself out there more, make sure that I'm showcasing the brand in a way that works for us and works for other people and also show them what's the advantage that they have as well, being a part of our community or working with us. Mm-hmm. So what are the core services you offer on the consulting side of things now? 
So with the Rosario Group, we do a lot more uh, venue consulting. We also do like event logistics. But the core of our work is really to help people kind of, how do I put this? We help them kind of execute what their strategy is Mm -hmm. if they have a marketing strategy. So we try to take a look at their business and see where the gaps are and help them create processes for their business, but then also project manage them so that when they set a goal, they meet it. A lot of the times when you're an entrepreneur, you kind of do things when you can, right? And I work with a lot of family-owned businesses where it's like, oh, well, this person will do it. And if not, you know, I'll pick it up later on. Right. And really no one to kind of reel it in. So I kind of come in as that person to make sure that people are staying on task, that they have the resources that they need to succeed and that their business is growing. Awesome. So going back to this idea of like bringing people together for food outings and brunch and all these great things. Oftentimes, especially in a city like New York, a lot of times there's a class divide. So there are countless great restaurants in New York, countless places to be. And you have a lot of people who do brunch, especially if you want to just talk about communities of color, the the grad scene, right? So Mm -hmm. the the urban professionals. But it's costly. It is very costly. So there are people, especially in our, within our communities who may want to try new foods and they want to have access to certain places but feel like they don't have the resources. How do you balance having these chic events that are really fly with keeping them affordable as well? I think listening to your customer is really important. So like when people give that feedback, like, or even just looking at the data, right? If you feel like something is not selling, it might be because the ticket is too high, mm-hmm. you know? So kind of responding to that in the next in the next event, sorry, responding to that in the next event, or I try to just talk to my people, right? Mm-hmm. We send out surveys, I'll ask them on social media, like, you know, what are you guys looking for? What range of price do you think makes sense for something like this that I might be putting in six to nine months down the line so that I take into account what they have going on. And I also think that partnering with brands helps as well to kind of offset your your costs um, for your client, really, because I want to make the experience affordable for everybody. That's also why I kind of slowed down on events, too, because um, we need partnerships in order to sustain the consumer to be able to enjoy what's going on. And right. those things take time. But I, I think it's important to just really work with your local businesses as well. And find out how you can support them and also creating ways for people to support you outside of a ticket sale. Mm -hmm. And how can they do that when it comes to Food Before Love or the Rosario Group? Well, well, with the Rosario Group, a lot of my business is word of mouth. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, just telling people about what we got going on is good for me. Mm -hmm. But with Food Before Love, like we even have like stuff in our shop, like we have pins and things like that. But even just if you have friends traveling And you tell them about us. We have guides on our site for different places, Seattle, Bali, Puerto Rico. So just sharing with other people that, you know, what our what our offerings are and how they can utilize us as a resource, I think is important because that content is free. Mm -hmm. You know, I I have an editor and we have insiders that are consistently going out to eat and writing and sharing information. So I think knowing that we have a community that can actually consume that and share that is extremely valuable to us. Okay, so you mentioned that you have a a shop, right? But Mm -hmm. we all know if you know anything about blogging or, or maintaining a site, the content is free, but it is not free. To, to get it out there. So <laughs> you're having your events, right? That you're doing your, you are 
you have a shop where you're selling things, but have you thought of a strategy or have you implemented a strategy to monetize the site in other ways? Um, so, I mean, we monetize the site by doing sponsored content. Mm -hmm. So that's one way. Another way is through affiliate partnerships. So like, for example, we're an affiliate with Instacart. So when I, I used to live in Atlanta for like a short little time and I would get my groceries delivered because I didn't drive and I don't drive. Mm -hmm. So if people sign up for Instacart through us, they get $10, we get $10. So small affiliate marketing, I think is important, especially if you speak about something enough and you can galvanize people to, you know, buy there or where they're already buying. Like we're also affiliates for Amazon. So we have things on Amazon that are food related. If you're already using Amazon, if you're using it through our link, then, you know, there's an exchange there too because you're already shopping on Amazon. Right. So that's one of the ways. And then, like I said, through sponsored content. So just reaching out to brands. Um, we've done different like recipes with brands, um, just showcasing their products, interviews and such and gotten paid for things like that. Okay. So are you at the point where like you have such a following on your blog that... People are coming to you saying, hey, you know, we want to advertise our restaurant. We want to partner in you with you in some way. Are you still beating the pavement, doing that cold calling, stopping into places and saying I have an opportunity for you? I think it's a little bit of both still. Mm -hmm. um, I still feel like I'm still beating the pavement every day, but... There have been opportunities that have come my way just from somebody thinking of me or hearing about us. And, you know, they slide in our DMs like, hey, we want to do this or could you guys come to this event? You know, and I think as I network more and as more people know what we do and who we serve and how we serve them and um, people get more familiar, then those opportunities come up. But I still feel like it's 60, 40, like 60 hustle and 40 of like kind of an influx of people. Mm -hmm. OK, so let's take it all the way back. You're a New York native, right? Yes, I am. Harlem. Yes. yes. OK, so you knew that you wanted to be in this space in some way. But like when I think back to being like 12 or 13, I don't think I knew that event planning or hospitality was an option. Okay. So how did you first discover that not only is this something that I like, but I can make a career out of this? I went to high school for teaching. Okay. So <laughs> went to high school for teaching, wanted to be, wanted to own your own restaurant. I didn't know that yet. Okay. And then at some point ended up in finance and then now we're here. All right. But let's back up. You went to high school for teaching and explain yeah. going to high school in New York because people who are not from here might be like, what are you talking about? You went to high school for teaching. Yeah. So I went to Richard R. Green High School of Teaching and now I'm not really too sure what that meant. Sorry, guys. But on Wednesdays, we would have to do kind of an internship slash half school, half be at someone else's school with a teacher and kind of assist them. Because high school in New York, you can have a focused area of study. Correct. Right. So you can go to school, math, science. You can do a technical school. Yes. So most people know like the fame high school, you know, for the, the arts or whatever. Oh, yes, LaGuardia. yes. But there are all these other programs where you can have a concentrated focus. So exactly. you went to school for teaching and you were spending some time one day a week or one afternoon a week with the teacher somewhere. Yep. So you thought you were going to teach what? I thought I was going to teach English. Okay. Uh, I used to work at the library. I was a big reader. I still am. And I was like, I'm definitely going to teach English. So I thought I was going to actually go to college to study that. Mm -hmm. But I, when I was filling out my applications, I realized that this was kind of a big deal. And I also realized that I have so many interests. And at that time, I was like, 
I wanted to do interior design. I wanted to do drama. I wanted to teach. I wanted to do events in some kind of way. And the schools that I applied to all had a hospitality program, but they also had something involved with the other things I wanted to do. So there was some kind of club, major, et cetera. So I was looking for somewhere that had all of those things. And hospitality really stood out to me because I felt like owning a restaurant would allow me to do all these things I want to do. I had an interest in interior design. I can set up my own restaurant. I mm-hmm. want to do some kind of customer service. I can be with people. I can do events at the restaurant. There's food. I don't have to be the chef, which was a great idea for me. And it just made sense. So yeah, that's kind of why I pursued it. Okay. So now you're working in that space, not in a way that you originally maybe designed or anticipated. You've got these brands that you're building, but you are a connector, right? If you can get 40 people in a room by sending out a flyer and some texts. And in New York, when like people's schedules are packed and there are always like various scheduling conflicts and people are, I'm going to roll through, but I got to be at these three other things. You're connected for real. So how does that manifest outside of just... I plan events, right? Or or I consult. How are other ways in your life where you feel like you bring people together and you you forge relationships and help other people forge those relationships? Well, a lot of my identity is tied into my work. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I'm able to connect people outside of kind of the work that I do, mainly just from knowing who's the who's who. Mm-hmm. So I try to connect people when really when they need anything. So any kind of professional relationship, whether I interviewed for something, met someone at an event. I mean, working in venues, I met so many people doing so many different things. And just between hiring and firing, you meet so many people. So working with photographers, video people, other entrepreneurs. So just trying to connect to people to different opportunities where they can flourish and where their services can be utilized is something that I love. And definitely I used to run a market as well. And I got to meet a lot of New York City food vendors. Mm -hmm. So I'm always excited about connecting them to some kind of resource that can help them better their business. So that's kind of how I use it. Okay, so for this idea of like managing a venue, what does that really mean? Because I think some people like know what it means to manage a restaurant or a club, but that's not what you're talking about, right? No. Okay, so what does it mean to manage a venue, especially in a city? Oh man, New York City venues, they could be something else. New York City is a special place. I try to convey that to people who have never lived here. That it's its own animal in every sense of the word. It is. And I think when you're attending an event, you really don't see what goes on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So you kind of just show up and have a good time and leave. And it's a lot more than that. Um, at, at least for me, a lot of the marketing piece of it. So really sell, being able to sell a space. Um, I think me having an event planner background helps when you come in as a client and you're interested in something. I can help you visualize what your event might look like because that's what I do. Mm-hmm. So that's one piece of it. But also kind of just being it's a lot of customer service and being that one on one person for the client when they're there, whether they're the planner, whether it's their birthday, et cetera, and making sure that they they're at ease and everything else is flowing as it should. Um, I like to joke within the industry, too, that you're kind of babysitting the space at mm-hmm. the same time because it's an investment that you're there to protect. So it's about that, but also assessing any issues that might arise during an event because things happen. So, yeah, that, that would be it. So if you are doing something like that and you have all these other things going on, 
I am assuming that you're not like managing all these venues full time. You might have an event over here, you know, then this one may be popping this week or what have you. So how do you monetize that? What's the fi- financial model when you're managing multiple venues at once? So at that time, I was kind of, I guess you could say part time. I don't really mm-hmm. know what my hours were, but they're untraditional hours. Yeah. And also running my business at the same time, which is why they both work for me. But back then it was more so on commission mm-hmm. and also um, through working the actual event as well. So I would get paid to book and then I would also get paid to work that event if I was working that event. OK, so commission structure um, is you're actually trying to find people to have events at the venue that you manage. Right. And how are you doing that? In New York, where there's like a venue on every corner where I could have something. This like Toshi's right down the street is empty now, which used to be a hot venue. I don't know what happened over there. I don't know what happened to Toshi's either. How do you become like the premier spot where people are like, that's where I want to be? Something that gets on my nerves in New York at venues is that everybody wants to upsell. Mm -hmm. And with that said, it's like you come into the space, let's say the space is $3,000. Now you want a projector, that's another $150. You want an event manager there, that's another $40 an hour. You want cleaning, you want security, you want this, you want that. Everything is an upcharge. So I think it's a really I think it's really about the structure of the business and make sure that you're pricing yourself in a way that doesn't hurt the customer, but also that they see the value in your space. And I think just having a space that make that is very unique. So maybe having a space that has breakout rooms, mm-hmm. I think is important because sometimes people want to do something over here and they want to do something over there or somebody wants to have their own dressing room. Models need their own you know, thing going on. Chefs need enough kitchen space. They need to be able to cook. I think all venues that have a kitchen are on the up and up. Absolutely. Because prep space is just not enough anymore. So I think those are all individual characteristics that have a space that, you know, you can sell. Okay. So that's a perfect segue into the current work that you do to consult businesses, right? Because when I think of consultants and I think when a lot of people think of consultants, they think of hourly rate. I'm going to pay all this money, Mm -hmm. money that I may not have for help to execute a vision. And if you're talking about working with small businesses as well, they're often cash-strapped, right? So you may be offering an incredible service that they want to utilize, but there is a reason that a lot of small businesses do everything themselves. Right. It's because they they think I, I can't afford to have someone else do it. So how do you balance offering A1 service and implementing and maintaining a standard of excellence, but also making it attractive from, for, from a price point perspective for your target customer? Well, something that you made me think about is just mindset. Mm-hmm. So it's like you believe you can't afford this because you believe that you can't make enough working with me to get it done. Right. And it also has to do with discipline because I can show you how to do it. But if you don't do it, (laughs) then you are going to be broke. Right. So it's about that, too. It's like you have to be ready to implement the work and you have to be ready to work. And if I feel I've given people their money back, like if really absolutely, because they're not they're not as dedicated as I need them to be. And it doesn't work if you don't work. So and then you're not about to be mad at me. Mm -hmm. So I need you to work. And while I work so that together we can create something that works for you and something I tell my clients as well is like, I don't want to work with you forever. Mm -hmm. I want to help you build something that you don't need me anymore. 
and you move on and do your own thing. So I think it's about mindset as well. I'm not charging you a fee to make you go broke and wonder why you did this. I'm charging you money that is going to be a drop in the bucket for you once we're, once we're done. So it's about that as well, like being confident in yourself and being complimented confident in the fact that you are going to be disciplined. You are going to be able to implement a strategy that works for you, that sells. And then working with me would be like, oh, of course. But do you think they have to have the discipline before you get started or can they develop it? Because I talk to entrepreneurs all the time Mm -hmm. or aspiring business owners and they always say, I just can't get going. Like I have so much going on. I'm stressed. I want to do this. I come home at night. I want to work on my business plan X, Y, and Z. And I just can't do it. And my advice is always at some point, you're just gonna have to make a decision, like Absolutely. start small, build habits and then build upon those habits and expand from there. But can you help them get disciplined or do you feel like they have to have that certain thing before you jump in and, and accept a retainer from them? I do believe that it is a work in progress because mm-hmm. it won't happen overnight. But like you said, I think it's about creating systems and knowing how to start small yeah. and understanding what people can take on. And I think it's also about reading people and hearing what they say, but also listening to what they need. Because mm-hmm. sometimes people think that they can take on these 10 things and then you start working with them. And it's like, actually, you can only do three. But guess what? Those three are, they're good enough, mm-hmm. you know? And then next time we'll go for six or we'll go for four. So I think it's about creating that within them. But I do think, you have to have at least an idea to commit, like Mm -hmm. an idea of, okay, I'm ready to do this. But it's about kind of getting you when you have that spark. Because once that goes away... You can forget it. Yeah, it's like hell and high water. Right. It could be really tough. So, but it's also my job to motivate people to want to do what they say that they're going to do. And it's, it's about them at the end of the day. Like you... You're committing to yourself. You're not committing to me and my business. You're committing to what you believe your purpose is. So let's see it through. Like you did not come this far just to come this far. Right. So we might as well get it done. Do you have to tell yourself that sometimes? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. All the time. Okay. So you have a very focused demographic when it comes to the Rosario Group. Is that correct? Yes, I think so. So I think that's one of the things we talked about um, in our prep call for this. So what kinds of businesses do you work with? So I normally work with hospitality-based businesses, Mm -hmm. but my clients have been all over the place. Okay. So we've had beauty clients, a lot of like wellness clients. So trainers, fitness centers, people that meal prep in that space. But we've also had like fashion clients. I've actually had a couple life coaches as my clients as well. So it could really be all over. But it sounds like they're all within the like self-care, development, looking good, feeling good. For sure. Space. Have you had someone come to you and say, I need your help, who's like totally out of left field, nowhere within your realm of interest or expertise, but the check is there? Have you thought like, you know what, maybe I'll deviate just just to get paid right quick? Or are you committed to clients that fit a certain profile? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty committed to Mm -hmm. it only because I've seen the stress of not being committed Mm -hmm. to it. And some people become more work than it's worth. So I kind of try to stay in my realm. Yeah. And one thing I have learned um, as someone who was in entrepreneurship for some time is it can be attractive sometimes to say, all right, they can pay. They're they're not within my area of focus, but I can learn and fill in the gaps and they've got the money and I need the money. So I'm just go over here and do this, do this thing real quick. And then you get into it and you realize, okay. 
um, had I just put this energy somewhere else, I probably could have made this money three yeah. or four times over. And this person is draining me and I'm spending way too much time bringing them up to speed and, and trying to get aligned. And, and I get it when people sure. are all over the place, but I do think the more focused you are, the bigger your business can grow and the farther you can go by knowing what your what your niche is, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, it's not worth it if not, because you end up um, what's the word I'm looking for? You basically end up wasting your resources mm-hmm. on pl- in places that it doesn't count for anything. So it ends up not being worth it. So do you have retreats or other like off, you know, off the beaten path outings that you do? Or is it all right here in New York? So I love to travel. Mm-hmm. It's my vice. And so because of that, it kind of went from people saying, you know, I want to go out to eat with you. or I want to brunch with you to I want to travel with you. Mm -hmm. So I started to recognize when I was away that people were going to McDonald's or no shade to McDonald's. Wait, like out of the country you're going to McDonald's? Yes. Yeah, no, that is not where it's at. Okay. I will say that fast food is better outside of the United States. True. I will co-sign that. That is true. But a lot of the time, even though food is important to a lot of people, where you eat can be an afterthought. Mm -hmm. So you end up going to your hotel bar or you end up going to the restaurant down the street because it's close. And I felt that people weren't really getting a local experience. So we started doing um, trips. So we have a series called Traveling While Hungry and we do different trips to different places so that you learn more about the food and culture when you're away. So we've gone to New Orleans. We did a trip to internationally to Cartagena, Colombia. Mm -hmm. We've gone to Philly. We recently went upstate to vineyard and stomp some grapes and did a wine tasting and things like that. Okay. So when you come up with these amazing ideas, like, all right, I'm going to take people to Colombia, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever. Are you fronting costs for this and then just believing that people are going to jump on the trip or are you getting more creative in, in how you make it happen? So not necessarily with the event, mm-hmm. um, with the trips. So with the trips, I wasn't fronting costs. Like people have to be down for us to go. Mm-hmm. I've kind of stra- changed my strategy as of recently. Like now we have a deposit deadline. Okay. So if you don't meet the deposit deadline and it's not enough people, I ain't going. Got it. But with the events, I was definitely bootstrapping and it was a lot of me putting up thousands of dollars and then hustling my tail off so that people show up because I needed to make my money back at the very least. How do you deal with that from a psychological standpoint? Because one of the hardest things, and we've talked about it on this podcast before, one of the hardest things with entrepreneurship is not necessarily knowing where your next dollar is coming from, right? So it's one thing to take a vacation when you're salaried because A, you may have you know, pay vacation days, you should. And you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to spend this money on this trip, but then I, on the 15th and 30th, right. I have another check. It is a whole other beast to say, I'm about to spend a few thousand dollars and put it up. And I don't know that I'm going to be paid again in two weeks or what have you. So yeah. from a psychological perspective, how do you keep yourself in a place of peace? And also you are a socialite. That's part of what you do. So you got to look fancy, free and fun and like loose and like the people person. So how do you keep in that right headspace? You got all this money out there. And like you said, your words, you've got to hustle to make it back. Well, it's definitely scary and it's definitely draining. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I feel like that used to be my life, like putting up $10,000 that I didn't have 
and just praying into the last minute. And if you know anything about events, it'd be the week of. Oh, my God. Okay. Can we just say people really need to start buying tickets earlier? I've only done a couple of events and like people are like, yeah, 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 I'm going to be there. And then you literally like the bulk 90 percent of your ticket sales will happen in the last like two, three days, which is so frustrating. I just had to get that off my chest. No, it's tiring. And and I mean, I've beat myself up about that in the past, Mm -hmm. too, like. Why I won't. But that's just, it's just the way that it is. Human nature. Like, mm-hmm. it, that's just it. As far as kind of keeping my mental health in check, I just pray on it. Mm-hmm. And I just been trying to rely more on God and not on my own understanding. So I think that really helps. And it's just about, you really got to pep talk yourself and you really have to believe in yourself. And I feel that, you know, one, if you've done it before, you could do it again. Mm-hmm. And two, If God did it for somebody else, he can do it for you. Absolutely. So it's about reminding myself of that constantly. And that kind of helps me kind of regain my peace. Awesome. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about identity. Okay. You are Afro-Latina. I am. Right. Which is a term I think that is more prevalent and understood now than it may have been previously. Yeah. Did you have ever have difficulty finding your tribe growing up? Um... Finding my tribe, yeah. Yeah, I did. In what way? But at that time, I didn't really know what that even looked like. Mm -hmm. But I definitely had... I guess identity issues because I really didn't know what I was in the first place. Okay. So but. you grew up in a Latino family, I, I would yes. think, right? But you didn't know what you were. What do you mean by that? So I'll give you the backstory. Mm-hmm. So I was raised by my godmother who's Puerto Rican and both my parents are, my both my biological parents are also Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. My mother's a little more fairer than I am and my father's a lot darker than I am. However, I didn't meet my dad until I was 14. Okay. So my whole life, I was told that I was um, Puerto Rican and black. And at that time, I didn't know that black meant, I didn't know it could be synonymous with something else. I didn't understand African-American and black being two separate things Mm -hmm. or being synonymous with one another. So... Also, this is a time where we didn't talk about identity the way that we do now. Mm -hmm. So assuming that I'm African-American and Puerto Rican, but I just say Puerto Rican and black. Anyways, I meet my dad and I wasn't really that moved then about meeting him, but I was also a teenager. And I remember asking him, he mentioned something about his identity. I think he told me he was Puerto Rican. And then I was like, you're not black. Mm -hmm. And he was like, no. And I just remember tearing up like, what? I'm not black. So all this time you thought you were half black. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was half African-American. And nobody said to me at that time. And no one said like, hey, Cass, you're still black. You're just not Mm African-American. So from then on, my whole identity was about me being Puerto Rican. And I didn't realize that I could be that I'm both. And I didn't understand race, ethnicity and nationality. I didn't that wasn't explained to me. And I kind of took people, you know, at their word and especially my parents, you know, so I, that's how I identified. And that was it. I'm Puerto Rican. People say, 
oh, I thought she was black. And I'd be like, no, I'm not. Now I'd be, people would be like, oh my God, I thought she was black. And I'd be like, oh my God, I am. <laughs> I'm just not African-American. So yeah, that kind of was a shift for me too. And it wasn't until actually I graduated college that I learned like, hold up, girl. What you mean you're not black? Like you black. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that kind of changed. So what do you think it is? Because I, I feel like there are still a lot of folks that I meet you know, who are Dominican or Afro-Cuban or what have you, and you say to them, you're Black, and they will flip out on you. Like, I am not Black. What is that within Latino culture to to not want to identify? So you re- represent, for me, a bit of a unicorn, like somebody who was devastated, like, I'm not Black. And then, you know, going through this thing where feeling like you could only identify as Puerto Rican and then finding out later, deciding, no, I'm, I am Black as well. But a lot of people don't want that label if they're not African-American or African per se. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with ignorance and ignorance just being a lack of education. Mm -hmm. Um, Because now I kind of feel dumb about it. Like, girl, what you mean? Like, how could you not see yourself? Mm -hmm. You know, so but also Again, I took people at their word and, you know, they knew what I was and that that was it for me. So I think there's that. And there's also the people that know, but they refuse to identify. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Like, I'm living in my truth. So I just kind of feel like, you know, do what you need to do, you know, but don't do it when it's convenient for you. Um, So, yeah, that was a message. You can say that again. But anyway, continue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just think that, you know. They probably, they lost, they're lost. And I think part of it too is black, unfortunately, in American culture, it's not synonymous with exotic. Right. In a way that Latina, especially for women, that Latina might be or Mm -hmm. something else. And people don't want to just be black. They just, a lot of people don't. I mean, I'm proud of who I am, like unapologetically, but there are a lot of folks who don't want that label because they want to be seen as other. I, I think that's part of it. And that's part of imagery and what we see in yeah. the media. We could talk a whole nother hour. But what about is exotic? That. Like, what is exotic? Exactly. I've been asking that question for a long time. Like, what, what is that? Not black. <laughs> I feel like a lot of a so lot like, of people. I don't subscribe to that. I know? do not either. But I think a lot of people do. And, and they believe, you know, to be perceived as, quote, special, they can't just be black. Girl, black is special. I mean, really. So, magic. We are magic every single day. Yeah, I don't get it. Yeah. So that that's a whole conversation for a different day. But I just want to share a take on it. Yeah, that's true. So whose story do you draw inspiration from? Whose story? Um... I love talking about Khalees. Mm -hmm. She inspires me so much and I just love, love, love her. Um, I think the way that a lot of people don't know that she's a chef now. So when I talk about it, people are always like, what? Get out. And I'm like, no, for real. She's yeah, like they're thinking the about like my milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. Exactly. Not that and she's now, like, didn't she go to, which school did she go she to? She went to La Cordon yes. Bleu. Mm-hmm. But she also just did a partnership with Bailey's where she made a milkshake. So you better get these, both these checks. Yeah, she's getting income. She's making it happen. Um, But I just, well, for one, she's a Harlem girl. Mm-hmm. So love that. But also... I just think as an artist and as a creative, she just doesn't care. She has always just been so unapologetic and just been about her art and creating that. And that always stood out to me and I felt it was important. And just like the way she'd be changing her hairstyles, like she just be doing her own thing. I just love that. But now her as a chef... um, it just shows that you don't have to be this one thing. Mm-hmm. I think we can get caught up even even as entrepreneurs that this is my business and, you know, this is it. 
this is it for me until the end of time. It doesn't have to be there. You can reinvent reinvent yourself tomorrow and you can do both or you can do all three if right. you want to. So I think that's so such an empowering message, you know, and she goes in and she owns it. And I love that. And a lot of the work that she does, even um, with agriculture and things like that, she's advocating for our communities in different ways and teaching us new ways to cook and new ways to live. And I think that that's important and something that we need to be talking more about. And her style is just fly all Hello, the way around. Honey, Even beyond the hair, she just got a swag about her that works. <laughs> yes, she does. So, okay. Yeah. So tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Okay. This is hard to think about. Um, actually, so the first thing that came to mind was yesterday. Really? Okay. Yes. Um, with my little sister. She asked me, she normally doesn't ask me for advice. Mm-hmm. And... I've learned to stop giving her advice because I want her to grow into whoever she wants to be. How old is she? She's 21. Okay. But yesterday she asked me for advice and she said that she saw something on someone else's like social media that they had accomplished that she had put on her planner maybe two years ago. And what made me feel like I had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day is that lately I just been feeling in a funk. Mm -hmm. Um, Just had some business dealings that weren't going so well that I'm working through and just life in general. And it's been hard for me to show up for myself. And Mm -hmm. here my sister was asking me to show up for her. And it's not a normal ask for her. So, you know, it was kind of time for me to kind of step up to the plate. Mm -hmm. But um, I just reminded her that she needs to create structure in her life and create a plan, write it down. I also tried to remind her that comparing yourself to other people, their their time is their own. Right. And yours will be yours. And, you know, it just never gets old that what's for you will not pass you. Absolutely. So when your time comes, because it will come, you know, it'll be there and you're going to be just fine. So and I sent her some videos, too, that I I sent her some sermons mm-hmm. that have helped me. And I also just sent her like just my personal something I might have shared on my story and things that I have shared out into the world that I was pep talking myself with. Mm -hmm. So I think showing up for her in that way was extraordinary for me. Yeah. And I think being a connector and, and being someone who has a strong personality, people look to you be it a a younger sibling or a cousin or just friends, they look to you for help, right? And and sometimes you have to pour from a place that's a little bit empty (laughs) for Mm -hmm. you. But the beauty of it is often you end up encouraging yourself in the process and, and reminding yourself that these are messages that I might need as well. Do you have a place that you can go? Like, because... Anyone, if, if if you are listening and you have not making made that that entree into entrepreneurship, there are ebbs and flows, as mm-hmm. many people have mentioned on this podcast. But you also have moments where it's like every possible thing is going wrong. Like clients aren't quite working out. This deal fell through. This is happening. What? And it'll it'll weigh on you in a different way than everything going wrong when you're an employee, because things can be going wrong as an employee, but you're still collecting a check. 
Right. right. So when you're in a place where deals are not going so great or you're you're questioning yourself, one thing that I regret doing in entrepreneurship at that time was like closing myself off. Like it was okay. like I didn't want anyone to know that things were as hard as they were because you're this powerful and not for nothing, like powerful woman of color. Like you are doing it. People are looking at you like, get it, sis. You're making it happen. And then but, you know, mm, I'm making it happen. But things are a little rough right now. Right. Are you able to be vulnerable and go to someone else and have them pour into you the way that you poured into your sister? I think you have to be in a vulnerable space. Mm -hmm. I think you need to commit to that as well. Mm -hmm. And that can be really scary. Um, I would say I have three main places. One is my therapist. I would be nowhere without Shout her. out to the therapist. So I think that's really important. And I think that the work that I've done through therapy has allowed me to be vulnerable and present in other spaces mm -hmm. um, so that I can survive because my therapist is not going to be around forever. So I need to be able to have people that I can create a safe space with mm -hmm. that I can do that. So um, second would be my best friends. Um and I think people that are where you are in business, too, that they can relate to what you might be going through um, definitely helps. And I think creating a safe space with them is so important. Um, yeah, my best friend, Melody, like I can tell her anything mm -hmm. and she listens. And also my friend, Sakita, like she just gets it. So I think talking to them and I also have a mastermind group. Okay. And through my mastermind group, which is basically an accountability group, and we help one another basically achieve our goals. But we meet every two weeks and it's been about two years now. So we're like family. Oh, nice. Yeah. So because we're like family, uh, we do this things that I this thing that I got off the job logs podcast, which is rants and raves. And we can rant about whatever we want or rave about whatever we want. And we also share our wins and do our goals and everything. But just having that time to talk about what's going on with us is really important. And the way that we support each other, I think, has been really important for me to kind of just get going when I don't feel like it. And I think you've highlighted three very important aspects of making sure that you're in a place to forge ahead and push through when things are bad. For sure. Therapy, right? Which everyone knows if you listen to this podcast regularly that I'm a huge proponent of therapy because I think sometimes we can rely too much on our circle of friends or our yeah. family or, our, you know, people we know through business who are not equipped exactly. to deal with what's really going on underneath. Because oftentimes... Everything's just a trigger. Mm -hmm. It's triggering you based on childhood trauma or things you've already been through or you're projecting anger over one thing. For sure. really something else. And you need to have someone who's trained and no, licensed to help you unpack that stuff. So that's one aspect. Then you have, you know, the homies who you can just vent to and they're just going to be like, girl, you're going to be OK. Right. right. Who allow you to say what you're mad about or hurt about or, or struggling with and give you space to like have your feelings validated, even if they're crazy. So there's right. that. Then you also need to surround yourself with people who are visionaries. And are trying to manifest a dream for themselves. And sometimes sure. those roles overlap, but that accountability is crucial. And I figured that out on a number of things, even with this podcast, right? Because there are some times where I'm like, I'm just tired. I don't want to do this. And there are two kinds of people. They're like my homies who just love me and want to see me, you know, taken care of and feeling good. And they're right. like, oh, girl, just skip it. It's fine. Right. That's not who I need right. in that moment. You can va validate my feelings and say, yeah, 
you know, you just, mm-hmm. you're tired and you've been going through a lot and I understand that. But I need those folks who are also working to build a brand to say, no, no, consistency is important. Do not kill right. your momentum. Make it happen. Where can you, you know, fill your cup somewhere else so you have the space, the headspace and the bandwidth to do this here? Like, what can you let go? So I think you are doing an amazing job. I just want to encourage you, even if you oh, are going you. through a rough time, that you have all the parts to make sure that your village is in a place where you can be held up and sustained even when things are not going great. And and that takes wisdom to make sure you have the right the right balance. Yeah. And I think it's about knowing who to go to for certain things, mm-hmm. too, like figuring out what is it that I need right now and then who in your tribe can you get it from so that it's sustainable. Right. Because every everybody is not going to be everything to you and you shouldn't expect that. For sure. At all. So what's on the horizon for you and for your brands? What's on the horizon? I really want to have a food festival next year. Mm -hmm. I was going to do it this year and I realized that I'm a perfectionist. Oh gosh, like every Mm -hmm. (laughs) 26er. And I wanted to be bigger than what I thought I did. So that's kind of the next big thing that I'm working towards. Just like trying to end the year off strong, figuring out what we're going to do editorial wise next year, what trips, what events, but just been slow and steady wins the race to doing a food festival in 2019. Okay. Here in New York? Yeah, for sure. Awesome. So since we're talking about New York, real quick, favorite restaurant right now? Because I know it changes for people, but what's your favorite spot at this moment? Okay. Yeah. My favorite restaurant does change all the time. Mm -hmm. I recently went to this restaurant called Suyo. Where's that? It's in the Bronx. Really? In the Bronx? Okay. This restaurant is fly. Like, shout out to Suyo. Like, they're fly. What kind of food are they serving? Um, It's a fusion restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's a gastro fusion restaurant, okay. actually. So they have some Latin dishes. They have some Vietnamese dishes, like definitely Asian influences. And I just think the restaurant looks so dope. It's so crazy because it's like right across from Wendy's. But I love Wendy's too, that 4 for 4. But <laughs> a foodie just shouted out the 4 for 4. I'm not mad at it. What, girl? <laughs> Ain't no shame in my game. Um, But yeah. The cocktails there are bomb, okay? And everybody that works there just was super nice. And the menu was just delicious. And it just looks like such a fly spot. Like, I just want to hang out there all the time. And ambiance is, not for nothing, is is an important factor. The food could be great, but if the ambiance isn't there... And the restaurant is really big. So I like that, too, because then you have flexibility and you don't feel like, oh, I have to be here or I have to be over there. Mm-hmm. You know, so I really love that. Cool. You think you might do an event there at some point? I'm actually considering it. Like, it's real fly. You got to check it out. I feel like the event's going to happen now just by the the look on your face. We'll see. <laughs> so where can people find you online? Um, So they can find us at foodbeforelove.com. Mm-hmm. Our site's going to be relaunching really soon this month. So they can find us there. And then for the Rosario Group, it's just the rosariogroup.co. That's CO. So are you online only under those brands? Do you have like a personal Instagram as well? Yeah, I have a personal Instagram. It's just my name, Cassandra.Rosario. Okay. Um, and then, of course, Food Before Love is everywhere on Twitter, on Facebook and on Insta. Awesome. So I feel like I need to get more restaurant recommendations. I got you. Now I know who I'm texting every time somebody says, I'm coming to New York. Where okay. should I eat? And then I'm at a complete loss. 
So I know who I'm looking to for those recommendations. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate you for having me. This was awesome. To our listeners, make sure you check out Food Before Love. If you're in New York or just want to come to New York, keep an eye out for this food festival because I have a feeling it's going to be very dope. So I'll be there for sure when it happens. Thank you. And as always, to our folks, if you're new, if you're old, you know what we say every week. Remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Tovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 